It's time to talk about the cost of living, about prices and wages. Those two things interact and they affect how well off we're feeling. How much money we have to live? Well, look, people are in pain right now. There's no getting away from that. This is the worst time that I can really remember. You've got lots of people still reeling from the... In November, every uh, pensioner is going to get £300 uh, to, to help with the cost of energy, uh, plus everybody who's entitled to disability benefit. He just doesn't get it, does he? He, he doesn't actually understand what working families are going through in this country, struggling about how they're going to pay their bills. But whilst he dithers... British households are slapped with an extra £53 million on their energy bills every single day. The cost of living crisis. It actually really frustrates me that the cost of living crisis is something that we even need to discuss. Let's think about it. It's concern over the sheer cost of simply existing, not just for those who are low earners, but even those earning well above the average salary in the UK. And for many, it's a very current reality. Right now, it's a decision between heat or eat. And this leaves no room for saving. I will deliver a bold plan to cut taxes and grow our economy. I will deliver on the energy crisis, dealing with people's energy bills, but also dealing with the long-term issues. Liz trusts us she'll deliver. Well, she certainly delivered an entertaining round of interviews when she appeared across BBC's regional stations. I am really glad that you are here as well, because since Friday, since your Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget, the pound has dropped to a record low, the IMF has said that you should re-evaluate your policies, and the Bank of England has had to spend £65 billion to prop up the markets because of what they describe as a material risk. Where have you been? Where has she been? Under 30s are the worst hit as a series of different government policies have slowly chipped away at young people's income for years. Rising rent, the increasing tax burden, student loans, there's less money coming in and more money going out. So where does this leave young people and savings? Can the young save in the same way as our parents could? Do young people even know how to save? If so, where are they putting their money? What if saving money was possible for the young? What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation. I'm Elisa Anwar, and in our first episode of season three, we'll be analysing the saving squeeze on young people. We're very grateful to Curtis Banks, a self-invested pension provider, for sponsoring the research undertaken in this episode. And later, I'll be speaking to them about why intergenerational fairness is so important. Now, we could argue that the current economic conditions impact all generations. But young people are hit the worst. IF has found that the percentage of household expenditure being spent on essential goods has increased for all age groups, except for those over 65. 
And it's important to note that it's increased the most for those under 35. Actually, nearly two-thirds of young people's total expenditure goes on essential goods. In economic terms, we say that young people have less discretionary spending. In other words, young people have little to spend on non-essential goods. Because they have less discretionary spending, the cost of living crisis is reducing their ability to save. So let's talk to some young people about their approach to saving. I'm joined by Rory, Cameron and John to talk about their experiences. Do you feel as though you can save? If so, how do you save? As much as, much as I try and budget, I find that every month there's always some extraordinary expense or there's someone's birthday or just something happens that means, oh, well, I need to kick the can down the road. I need to save at a later point. Um, and it's quite tricky. I'm, I've not grown up very financially literate. And so I'm doing all the budgeting and stuff for the first time. And the main form I do is just sort of, I have a pot on my bank account that accrues very tiny, tiny, tiny negligible interest. And do you think that this goal of achieving a house, like right now, is it feasible? No, not at all. Um, I, I know the property market is in, is in disarray and it always is in disarray. So I, it's sort of demotivating because there isn't a savings goal. You're, you're looking back and you're comparing yourself to previous generations, your parents. You're saying, oh, well, they saved up, they got a deposit and they bought a house by this age. Why can't I do the same? But again, it's all these external factors that you just can't keep up with and everything's against you in the market or just every policy decision seems to favour everyone else except young people. And Cameron, obviously living at home, you probably don't have as much expenditure going out in rent. So do you feel as though you can save? Actually, uh, my car completely broke down. It was a relatively old car and I think the timing belt snapped on my way to work. So it meant that I had to kind of use the savings I did have to pay for a new car so that I could actually be able to go to work because ultimately I still have to be in the office four days a week so they're not going to let me then start working from home so it's become a bit challenging for me to save but I, I do put a budget in place and now I'm going to in a, in the next months after Christmas I'm going to try and save 500 pounds a month which um, is probably quite a significant amount of money for most people in terms of what you're able to save but it's, uh, I guess, reflected the fortunate position I am in terms of living living at home. And if you weren't living at home, do you think that you would be able to put 500 aside or? Absolutely not. Mm, not unless, I, I find it very kind of disconcerting. I, I really find that unless you're with a partner, whether that be a friend or whether that be in like a more romantic relationship, I really struggled to see how people would be able to save to have a mortgage in their own right as a single person. And what about you, John? Do you feel as though you can save? I'm actually doing no spend in September, so I've actually not been out spending any money, you know, like cinema or bowling or eating out and stuff. So, was that prompted by the cost of living crisis, or is just something you wanted to do? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was curious about doing it anyway, so I thought, you know what, why not? Um, so, kind of, it helps in a way to be honest. It kind of have a bit of a plan in place, you know. Um, I mean, I do have savings, yeah, but I've been eating into it with all this that's going on. Do you know what I mean? Getting big bills come through, so. Um, so it, it is it is scary and uh, the amount of people I go out to are single mums um, who are struggling they can't even afford to put the electric on or or eat themselves they're feeding the babies and sometimes they haven't even got nappies for the babies and stuff so they're selling like they're selling like items of clothes or I know one person that sold their mobile phone to feed a kid 
um, it's disgraceful. Do you know what I mean? And then all the worry with the mental health side of things um, is a bit crazy, to be honest. Do you feel fully informed about your saving and investment choices and where you can put your money aside? Not really, no. My a lot of my friends from university, they had um they already had savings or their parent like they were they had familial wealth, so they inherited like different pots of money or they inherited like investment portfolios and or things that their family could guide them on. So they they always take it as a sort of a given and they don't think anything of it, but that's not really I'm not from that background, so I don't have that understanding when it comes to savings or anything like that. And what about you, John? Do you feel like fully informed of where you can put your money? Not really, but I don't. I don't really think we are informed, are we, without to save and stuff? It would be good if you could if you could get more more for your money, especially with the banks and stuff. But you you, you get peanuts, do you? You know what I mean? There's nothing. I mean, it, you know, like years and years ago, we used to be able to make some money on your, on your money, but you don't anymore, do you? So, yeah. What about you, Cameron? All my financial kind of investment knowledge is, is self-taught. I think that I was in a fortunate position that I kind of had the experience with the Intergenerational Foundation. And that kind of taught me a little bit about investments because that was kind of the, the structure of conversations they were having in terms of looking through intergenerational justice and how, for example, pensions um, were significantly favourable to the older generations, but there wasn't necessarily anything equivalent for the younger generation in terms of saving. Now, that's not necessarily a traditional investment, but you have things like stocks and shares and you have maybe more material goods like watches, for example, or, or um, metal, for example, that you could possibly look to trade in at a small scale. And you might be quite profitable because I guess the annual percentage returns are, are quite good. I think it's quite interesting, though. I kind of want to compare it to there's that kind of stereotypical question where it's like, would you what's heavier, a one, one kilogram bag of sugar or one kilogram ba bag of feathers or something of that ilk? And then if you were to ask somebody, would you rather have £30,000 now or would you rather have £30,000 in 2005? They probably might say now. But if you look at inflation, it means that in real terms, you actually have less money. So I don't know if people are being educated on um, exactly what inflation means in real terms to understand that unless you were to get for example a pay rise or you were to have investments that significantly exceeded the level of inflation you're actually losing money and if people um, kind of understood that more perhaps then it might become an even more significant issue I, I know it's a, a real issue as it is but it's kind of I guess guided through the prism of a cost of living crisis because they understand things are going up but maybe they don't understand that they're probably losing money by just allowing it to sit in a bank for example. Do you feel as though you have enough for the future and how do you feel about retirement? Whoever wants to go first can go first. It's, I think with everything on just everyone's plate at the moment, I, I haven't even spared a thought for retirement. I, I get my um, pension summary every year and I don't even look at it. I have no idea about pension. I should probably put some more money towards my pension because some of more, my more financial literate friends always advise me about how there's never going to be a state pension for us and we're going to lose out quite a lot on pensions. Um, but, you know, it's another thing that we can kick down the road and it's not a problem for now. There's more pressing issues um, with like just trying to survive with a government that seems to hate us. 
I agree. The government do hate us. Um, it's ridiculous the pension. I've got a private pension, which I pay into. It's only like £5 a week or whatever, but it all adds up. And I've not really thought about being retired, to be honest. I don't think I'll retire. I just think I'll keep on doing it. I have to be busy every single day, you know, especially for my mental health and that. Uh, and I help a lot of people in the process when I'm working and helping at the same time. Um, but yeah, I've never really thought about retirement, I think. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, you've got to look after yourself, especially put things aside as best as you can. And I know it's hard for some people, you know, if they're on low incomes or not earning a lot of money, uh, but have a lot of outgoings. I think that'd be quite hard and, you know, pressure. I know a lot of people have like, is it called the universal credits? So it tops the money up, doesn't it, each month and stuff. I've got a lot of people I speak to are on that. And it helps them massively. And they say to me, didn't have that, wouldn't have anything. And uh, imagine when we need to be, a, you know, of a pension age, what we're going to get. And they're like, nothing. Um, so, yeah, I kind of, kind of think, I don't know, just basically, I'm not even thinking about being a pensioner yet, you know, but thinking about it. If you had to think about it now, if it's going to go to pension age tomorrow or next week, I'd be like, oh, my God. Nah, I couldn't be dealing with this. I need to get a job or something. Because like Rory said, we've got no pension, have we? Our, our generation there's, there's nothing there for us um but it is scary but um you know that's a long way off um so i'll think about that when i get to it <laughs> uh i've kind of taken the decision to um, put as much as i supposedly can right now uh, along with being able to kind of save ordinarily so i contribute i think eight percent to, to my pension i think my employer also contributes eight percent um but i don't necessarily think about the pension in more broader terms I do understand that it's likely that in our lifetime, the retirement age will increase. So I'm kind of hoping that um, health technology and the discovery and medicines and things like that will also mean that we, our life expectancy increases, but those things can't be certain. I'm, I'm not have enough knowledge to be able to predict those. So I kind of just more inclined to worry about, about them now. I don't necessarily feel like I'm informed, but I think there's plenty of time to be informed by, by it by now, but I guess, uh, the most important thing is if you don't earn a lot of money, then you kind of have to look away from your pension and look to other forms of savings that we've already speak, spoken about on this call. And it's, if you're not going to be able to um, get the financial literacy to be able to really understand those investments, you could also possibly lose out there as well. But I guess more broadly, I do think it's uh, very much for the future. And like uh, Rory said, to, to kick down the can for, for a future date in the hope that it's kind of naturally all sorted by then. Some of my friends have actually stopped contributing to their auto-enrollment pension. And it's just because, um, again, kicking the can down the road, but it's it's purely because with the cost of living going up and um, no wage growth anywhere, they've just, the student loans are taking out quite a lot of money from their, it, well, it's noticeable. So they're just not contributing to their pension anymore. And a couple of them are civil servants. So they're, the, the main draw of their job is the pension and they're not taking advantage of it because they can't. Just going on about what Cameron was saying about, uh, you know, you've got your main income. You can have other bits and pieces as well. You know, little side hustles, as you want to call them. I think it's always good to have a bit of a passive income coming in as well. You know what I mean? Um, as well as your main income. You've always got something to fall back on. Um, well, no, it's interesting. I feel like in lockdown, people did start a lot of like small businesses. They sort of blew up, didn't they? Because people had the time. But then I guess we live in a world where like, I, I don't think we should have to rely on having additional jobs just to kind of make ends meet. Did you um, 
there was a re there's an article in Financial Times that came out today and it said that the income in the UK had fallen for the by 2024 the median household in the UK will be poorer than the median household in Slovenia and it mapped it by um the poorest quartile and the poorest like in the median and and the UK has performed so much worse than every other country basically in Europe and it's only going to continue to decline um, and it's just crazy that nobody's talking about the the stagnant wages how nothing is growing and inflation continues to rise and nobody's doing anything about it. I think it's the most expensive country in the world England <laughs> we, get, we get taxed on absolutely everything I reckon they would tax us if we if for breathing I think it's going to get that bad no seriously though we are heavily taxed aren't we so that's how some young people feel, but let's crunch the numbers and look at the maths behind young people and saving. For this, I'm joined by IF researcher Alec Hargland. So the topic of saving money is really broad, so I think it's best that we can break it down into maybe long-term saving and short-term saving. Can you please define the two types of saving and explain why the younger generation are hindered in both? Uh, so yeah, in general, when we talk about saving, we refer to, to saving in general. But shorter saving usually implies the kind of saving that helps you in the short term. So if you lose, you know, some hours, you know, short term cut to pay or some kind of emergency so that you need to spend, you know, say 500 quid or one grand or something so that you have that available when you need it. Like coffee spilling on your laptop or something. For example, yeah. for example, <laughs> while long term saving uh, implies more savings, say, towards retirement or old age, or also even, you know, towards a bigger goal, like uh, buying a property that can be classified as long-term saving, as in something that is not on the immediate horizon, but rather something far off in the future. And then why do we think that young people are hindered in both short-term and long-term? Cost of living has gone up. Young people spend a disproportionate amount on essential spending uh, that older people well when they were young uh many decades ago they didn't have to spend such a large proportion of their expenditure on that kind of saving also they had more generous generous occupational pension schemes such as final salary schemes etc <laughs> so saving uh, you know in the way that people save now wasn't necessarily as essential back then also you had a more generous welfare state that you actually could rely on uh, the housing market wasn't as financialized and uh, rents weren't as high. This is not to mean that there weren't all the people who were struggling then. Of course there were, but the average person didn't have to spend such a high proportion on essentials or rent as uh, young people now. Yeah, I mean, in your report, you mentioned that I think it was like 68% of UK adults believe that it is harder for young people to save for the future than their generation had it. So I think I think that is like, I wouldn't say it's a unanimous belief, but a lot of people do agree with that. Yeah, and, and that also shows that there is uh, an understanding among the older generations that the situation has changed now. So in your report, you, you did some research looking at how young people ideally would like to save and what form of saving they think would make the most from their money. So could you talk me through what you found? Yeah, of course. Uh, so a decade ago, about forty percent of young people. Uh, it's a little bit it was a little bit lower for the youngest young people, a little bit higher for the uh, those in their thirties. 
of the property was what would make the most of their money. And about 20% thought uh, employer pensions was what would make the most of their money. Personal pensions, stocks, ISAs, savings accounts, all of those ways of saving were in between 5 and 10%. So not as popular. Uh, however, in 2020, when the latest official data for this exists, property had become even more popular of an answer, unsurprisingly. Mm. Uh, 45% basically say that uh, property is what will make the most of their money. However, perhaps more interestingly, uh, the popularity of employer pensions as an answer to the question of what would make the most of your money uh, rose by quite a bit. So between the young age groups, this stands now at 25 to 30% of young people think that that would make the most of your money. And of those aged 16 to 24, from a decade ago, that was an 11 percentage points increase. It's interesting that whilst there have been some changes, you know, property is still like at the top. And even for myself, I would say, you know, I think the best use of my money would be to buy property because the yeah. value of a property will increase so much more than yeah. putting my, va- like my money anywhere else. Yeah. But it's interesting to note that, for example, uh, year on year, the average, the average increase in the property value was actually higher than the median salary in the country. <laughs> so essentially, your wealth would have increased more by just selling a property. Exactly, and it's dollars. sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, is though, as you touched upon this, like buying a property is not really achievable for most young people unless they have some sort of financial help. That's not really achievable for many medium earners, let alone you know, grad salary, low earners. So do you think that this form of saving is just a fantasy? Of saving in property? Yeah. Uh, for many. For many, it definitely is. And, and I think uh, also the aspect of that, because buying a property isn't the same type of saving as, as buying stocks, right? Because uh, buying a property also gives you not just financial security, but it can help to give you psychological security as well of having a place that you can call your own home and not having to worry about uh, your you know landlord evicting you yeah. for, for whatever reason and being able to put roots down in uh, in a place that you like. Although ONS data shows that more property owners are home occupiers, uh, owner occupiers generally feel more happy and satisfied about about their life mm. than so those like who are renting. Yeah, so we have to remember that there are other sides to that too. Mm. For example, you know, you don't have a psychological attachment to a stock that you own. Or, <laughs> I mean, most people don't. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but with a property, it's a different thing. And that's also why, why it is a fantasy that most people do not, cannot rid themselves of, because it's more than just about saving, right? Mm. It, it means something else too. A lot of young people don't really, at least from my perspective, they don't really cons- like realise that their pension is a form of saving. But the vast majority of pension schemes young people contribute to, they're defined contribution schemes. They're not as generous as the defined benefit schemes that older generations had or the final salary pension schemes they had. Those are like gold dust now. Um, but, you know, to play devil's advocate, auto-enrollment, isn't that a good thing? Because more young people are just automatically being enrolled into a pension and therefore, by default, being given a pot of savings. Isn't this good for saving? Yeah. Or can it have negative impacts? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say 
The short answer is yes. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, it isn't, you know, the silver bullet that uh, maybe some people see it as. And I think that's where we have to be careful. Uh, because well, so what auto-enrollment means is that uh, if you're employed in the UK, you earn more than uh, £10,000 per year and you're over the age of 22, you're automatically enrolled into a workplace pension scheme. Uh, it implies that you do not need to take a, an active decision to saving uh, in a pension scheme. And saving in a pension scheme comes obviously with some tax advantages, etc. However, what, what is important to note is that, you know, the pension part of most of these young people is still minimal. At the same time, there are, not everybody benefits proportionally from auto-enrollment. So for example, if you're self-employed, obviously you're not included in the in auto-enrollment because you do not have an employer. And among young self-employed people, only 6% contribute to a pension. So that remains really low. What I'm trying to say here is that auto-enrollment has lots of positive effects, mm -hmm. but we shouldn't think of it as having solved the problem of saving in any way. It's a, it's a good policy that has increased the amount of young people with some pension, but those, the level of pens, pension wealth remains very small. And also, I think, like, you know, the state pension in itself, it, if we look at the current, like, economic trajectory of how we're going, I don't think that itself would be enough money to live comfortably once you do retire. So straight away, young people need to start thinking about other forms of saving in addition to their pension because their pension alone probably won't be enough. Yeah, the, the state pension, yeah, exactly. And I mean, this is precisely why we wanted to do this research as well, right? Because uh, as we see a retreat of the welfare state where the welfare state is not as generous as it used to be, and it implies that young people must actively themselves think about how to save for their future because the welfare state in terms of the state pension, it's not enough for a, for a comfortable life. Uh, part of the reason why, you know, this is not a problem for all older people currently is that they own valuable homes yeah. and have large, you know, personal pension pots or, or something else. Of course, not all of the older people currently have that. And those who rely solely on the state pension yeah. are struggling. So, of course, we should also think about uh, increasing the state's pension age, but also targeting it towards those who actually need it, rather than those who own a home worth uh, a million pounds. Yeah. Well, you know, attitudes to saving are evolving. And I think another big change where young people are putting their money is cryptocurrency. I virtually know absolutely nothing about this area. Um, but, you know, the survey data has found that out of young people who do invest, more than 50% do so in crypto. So why and what is it? Yeah, it's important also just to note that uh, in this survey, that took a different view to investing rather than saving, right? So this is more about those who sort of actively invest yeah. rather than the uh, traditional ideas of saving. So, for example, the profile of of most UK crypto investors. It tends to be people, you know, in their 30s and 40s, uh, generally men, also who are like relatively well off, sort of young professionals. So many of them can afford to gamble a little bit. Uh, and most of them are relatively well aware about the risks and do not invest large amounts. But there is certainly also a proportion of crypto investors who are, you know, younger than that, 
less well off and might not be fully aware about what they're getting themselves into. It's a very volatile, unregulated uh, new asset market. It can be it can be a dangerous place to put your savings if you really can't afford to, to, to lose what you what you invest. But at the same time, it's understandable why some young people, you know, have become enticed by the idea of investing into crypto assets precisely because uh, where else should you save? Also, if you just have very little to save at the end of the month after, you know, paying your sky high rent, increasing energy bills and increasing food prices, it might feel a little bit futile to just invest a a tiny bit into a personal pension or something like that, which has, you know, low returns and a long horizon, and instead try to make a quick buck with some uh, more risky things like crypto assets. So what should be done about the saving squeeze on young people then? What, what is the solution? So it really is a cost of living problem. And I mean that in the widest uh, sense of the word. Uh, if everything that you require to, to live, like a house, food, bills, transport, if all of that costs so much money and the prices of that keeps rising and your wages don't keep up, it, it shows why this is a symptom of an economy that doesn't work for young people as a whole. And uh, basically, it boils down to the fact that it's not that young people don't know how to save, it's that they don't have enough money at the end of the month to put towards saving. And uh, simultaneously, obviously, young people are not able to save in the types of vehicles that previous generations could, you know, say property or, mm. or something like that. That's not, that's not something that we can just, with a policy intervention, change. Yeah. Uh, however, there are things but which we can do. For example, we can uh, try to stop further financializing the housing market to try to stop, you know, property prices from, you know, skyrocketing for the, you know, infinite future. Uh, we can try to ensure that, uh, you know, we build more affordable housing, that we build more social housing, incentivize downsizing, for example. Uh, you know, all of these would have tangible impacts on the ability for young people to save. Simultaneously, we could have free education. Uh, one big barrier for young people to save is having to pay what is in effect a graduate tax. Yeah, student uh, loan. <laughs> exactly. And uh, and uh, that is an intergenerational injustice. Uh, older generations, you know, they had their education subsidized by the, by the taxpayer. Current young people do not. And living through a cost of living crisis, facing stagnating or falling real wages, while at the same time having to pay a graduate tax is making it very difficult for young people to build up savings. That, combined with uh, the fact that the taxation system in the UK is unfair. Yeah. It, it's uh, essentially there's a bigger tax burden on income from work, as we touched upon earlier, uh, while, you know, income from capital gains or, uh, you know, property gains, etc. are not uh, are not taxed as high as, uh, you know, a graduate earning £30,000 per year faces marginal tax rates of 42.5%. Uh, so it's, there's an unfair tax burden placed on, on young people. So we could try to make the tax system more equitable, both in terms of uh, intragenerationally and intergenerationally. 
Uh, and the same same thing is uh, the case with with bills with with utilities. We have an energy system that does not function. Uh, of course, there are external factors that play a role in it. Uh, but at the same time, there are things that the UK government could do. We could invest more in wind and renewable energy, which could provide cheaper energy. Uh, we could have uh, say a windfall tax on these massive. Uh, uh, profits made by the fossil fuel giants and also we could just stop subsidizing the fossil fuel giants which is you know currently also happening uh, so essentially what i'm trying to say here is that uh, the inability of young people to save is a symptom of an economy that is stacked against them it's not that young people don't know how to save uh, they do so uh, but it's that they do not have enough money to save. It has to be recognized that the main reason that young people are locked out from, from the benefits of saving is not, uh, is not technical policy reasons, but it's the unfair position in the current economy which young people find themselves in. And the high cost of living is at the very heart of that. Yeah. It's at the very heart of it, and we cannot overcome this problem of the financial insecurity of young people without facing the reality of uh, the unfair economy. It's really interesting to look at the facts and figures behind the saving squeeze. As I mentioned at the start, we're very fortunate to be sponsored by Curtis Banks, a self-invested pension provider for this episode. I had the pleasure of speaking to Philippa Heal, a senior marketing executive, to ask why intergenerational fairness is so important to our organisation specifically through the policy lens of pensions. I think saving is also habitual. You know, it's often a learned behaviour that we are taught from our parents and grandparents or generally just those older generations. There is really little focus and also education on saving and the benefits to do so for the young outside of that kind of culture, you know, or, or the need to talk about seeking financial advice. So what happens if the younger generation now continues to feel that struggle to save short term and long term as they get older will that culture of saving reduce or stop because the ability to save or the benefits of doing so aren't there like they were for previous generations it's really key and particularly at a time when people are struggling to save that the focus remains on the importance of saving so that it's not lost Pensions are already flexible and tax efficient vehicles that can be used to help pass down wealth through generations, but often only after death and the right planning needs to be placed in advance to take advantage of the benefits that pensions can fully offer. Could policymakers not review easier access to some of that wealth at a time when it might be most needed, such as to help grandchildren pay off student loans? Um, you know, therefore increasing their expendable income or a deposit for a first house to help younger people get on the property ladder um, so that they can help start their own savings journey sooner. If policymakers were to consider the needs of the younger and future generations now, it would help benefit not only those that are struggling financially, but also the economy. And that is why we have continued to partner with the Intergenerational Foundation on this report to continue to promote intergenerational fairness and help fight for a fairer future. This latest report by the Intergenerational Foundation is called The Savings Squeeze, Young People Locked Out from the Benefits of Saving. 
and is where all the research, stats and facts mentioned in this episode have come from. Fighting for equality amongst current and future generations is something that we should all strive towards and is central to the work of IF. If any of the topics and discussion in this month's podcast have caught your attention, then head over to www.if.org.uk, where IF have conducted incredible research into the topic, or follow the Intergenerational Foundation on Twitter, Facebook, and even Instagram. What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation.